Well, what's your name? Jay. And uh, what do you think about the minimum wage just going up? Well, it's nice that it's going up a little, but it really doesn't make a difference. You know, until there's, uh, until uh, the minimum wage matches a living wage, we're still going to experience the problems, labor shortages, all that kind of stuff. So it's not going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> Welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have an interview with Dina Ladd. She's the executive director of the Workers' Action Centre in Toronto. She's here to talk about the minimum wage hike and working conditions across Ontario. We also have Rebecca Gordon, a researcher from the University of Guelph who focuses on labor in the hospitality industry. Rebecca makes a case that if restaurants want to survive, they should start investing as much in their employees as they do their customers. And a very special interview with Dr. Patrick O'Byrne. He's a professor of nursing at the University of Ottawa and his team has developed a home test kit for HIV. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum's editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutille, and Fulcrum staff writer, Selma El-Haj. Welcome to the broadcast. Affidavits, in a proposed class proceeding, alleged University of Ottawa was made aware of former Dr. Vincent Adams inappropriate conduct of a sexual nature in or about 1995 through complaints by two female students. According to these affidavits, the university told both women in the letter that it would not pursue any formal investigation due to a lack of physical evidence of any wrongdoing by Nadon. Nadon, who was employed by University of Ottawa Health Services as a physician from 1990 to 2018, was arrested on January 18, 2018. He was charged with 94 accounts of voyeurism and sexual assault pertaining to 51 victims. On December 5, 2018, he was found guilty of two counts of voyeurism and 12 counts of sexual assault arising from his misconduct while practicing at the UOHS health clinics between 1990 and 2018. The proposed class proceeding is seeking $110 million in damages for the disgraced physician's alleged victims. Nadon, the University of Ottawa, and University of Ottawa Health Services are all named as defendants in this proceeding. The Catholic Church launched an aggressive silent campaign to release itself of the millions of dollars it owed to residential school survivors. The church claimed that it had no money and couldn't pay, so the government's efforts to collect the funds would be futile. Though the church tried to keep their efforts secret, the church first began their silent campaign in 2014 and 2015. 
The church actively argued that it had no money and would not be able to make the payments and restitution it owed survivors of its residential schools. A private deal was negotiated behind closed doors with government officials, and that only resulted in more confusion, as both government lawyers and lawyers for the church make the claim that they agreed on a different set of numbers. While the church intended to pay its penalties with fundraising and in-kind donations, government officials said the church failed in their promise to deliver, and the services it claimed to offer had not been audited, providing no clear value. Furthermore, the church was accused of using the funds to pay for its own lawyers in the process. Amina Edhemri has announced that she will be stepping down from her role as UOSU Clubs and Services Commissioner at the end of the month of October. In an email sent to UOSU's management and service staff, Edhemri announced her reason for leaving the union was that she had been offered a role as a teaching assistant in a communications course with the University of Ottawa. Due to her untimely departure, Edhemri will not be replaced via the fall by-election. Instead, the union's executive committee will appoint her replacement. The appointee will need to be approved by the USU's board of directors. Thousands of refugees from Haiti are arriving at the U.S.-Mexican border in desperation of a better life. Haiti was devastated by an earthquake in 2010, which obliterated the country's economy, already one of the poorest in the world. Originally, many of the refugees settled in Chile, but the political issues in the region have made them feel discriminated against and unsafe. The Haitian refugees hoped President Biden would offer them sanctuary. However, the Biden administration has been sending thousands back to Haiti, even though it is a disaster zone that many had previously fled years ago. The U.S. government is also forcibly sending Haitian children who have never lived or seen the country back to the disaster zone. Daniel Foote, the U.S. ambassador appointed by President Biden to the U.S. special envoy in Haiti, has resigned in protest. Foote called the United States' actions inhumane and counterproductive. The Ottawa Police Service is still searching for a number of individuals following a gathering that derailed on Saturday night on Russell Street in Sandy Hill. The gathering took place following the University of Ottawa's 19-17 victory at the annual Panda Game over Carlton. What was supposed to be a celebration for Pedro the Panda quickly turned for the worst when mischievous individuals flipped a car and assaulted its owner. This has led many, including Councillor Mathieu Fleury, whose ward includes Sandy Hill and Mayor Jim Watson, to wonder if Panda Game should be cancelled next year. The University of Ottawa, in a statement, called the actions of those involved disgraceful and shameful. The U of O said it would collaborate with police's efforts. It did not express support for the cancellation of the Panda Game. Photos of the wanted individuals can be found on OPS's website. In Afghanistan, some of the top female lawyers are now in hiding from the men they once prosecuted. Farishta, a 27-year-old once influential prosecutor, brought a lot of men to justice, including criminals, Taliban militants, and corrupt bureaucrats, and many other men who beat women and children. Originally from the southeastern province of Paktia, Farishta was among the Afghan women who obtained professional success over the years once the Taliban were defeated. Under the previous regime, Farishta rose up to prosecutor in Afghanistan's attorney general's office. But now, as the Taliban have swept across the country in recent months, They have freed prisoners, including the thousands of hardened criminals and Islamist militants. One of the criminals let go by the Taliban 
was Mohammed Gall, who Farishta had gathered evidence against and successfully prosecuted for a 20-year sentence for planning suicide bomb attacks. Shortly after the Taliban gained control of Kabul, Mohammed Gall called Farishta and promised revenge on her. Since then, she has been on the move. USU has announced that it is now advocating for the introduction of a modified compassionate grading system for BIPOC students and those who are the first in their immediate family to attend university in Canada. This would be for courses students decide to retake to get a better grade. Anna and Mansour, the union's equity commissioner, said that the union is trying to find a method where the first grade a student receives would not hinder their future. This would replace the pass and fail option for students who opt to use this new model. A judge in Spain has shocked women's rights groups around the world after dismissing a case where women were secretly filmed urinating in public and the videos were shared on porn sites. At least 80 or more women and girls were recorded as they urinated in a side street because of a lack of accessible washrooms. In many instances, there were close-ups of the women's genitals and faces. Some of the videos even required and received payment from viewers. After the videos were discovered, many of the women exploited in the recordings tried to take legal action and prompt an investigation on the grounds their privacy had been violated. The judge based his decision on the grounds that because the videos were recorded in a public space, they cannot be deemed criminal. Thank you, Selma. Thank you, Charlie. Last week, the minimum wage in Ontario went up 10 cents. The current minimum wage in the province now sits at $14.35. The Workers' Action Centre is committed to improving the lives and working conditions of people in low-wage and unstable employment. Dina Ladd is the executive director of the Workers' Action Centre. The centre is based in Toronto, but has affiliates and resources for workers who face abuse in their workplace just about anywhere. She joins me now. Dina, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no, happy to do uh, have this conversation on a very important topic. Now, why do we keep hearing that there's a labor shortage right now? Well, I, I don't think that there's a labor shortage, to be honest. I think that there's a wage shortage. I think that what I am certainly hearing and through the work that I do at the Workers' Action Center is that, you know, COVID has shown us um, how certain jobs that are precarious and low-waged and don't have benefits, don't have paid sick days, can actually jeopardize your health. And I think that we saw, you know, almost, what, 10,000 people die in Ontario. Um, obviously, many of them residents of long-term care homes, but many workers. And so I think a lot of workers are thinking about the quality of work that they go back to, the working conditions, whether or not they'll be able to go home at night and keep their families safe or the people that they share an apartment with. I think it's not just a, an issue of, you know, I need a job, any job. I think that, you know, the whole conversation that we're having that is posed, you know, is it, is it a labor shortage? Is it a wage shortage? is fundamentally, I think, about the kinds of jobs 
that we want in our communities and the jobs that we ourselves want to work in. And, and that that is not just an individual's responsibility, but that that is a, a more of a collective responsibility. And what I mean by that is that if the grocery store worker who is bagging your food and who is stocking the shelves is not able to keep themselves healthy, that means that when we go to the grocery store to buy those products, it is going to have an impact on us, right? Like it. So, so the the there is a direct connection between the health of essential workers and the health of the communities that they serve. And I think that that was not necessarily sort of thought through, or or people didn't really understand that connection before COVID. I think people get it now. And I think that that then raises a whole bunch of questions about the quality of jobs um, and how much you're paid and then, you know, health standards. Now, the minimum wage just went up. Is that not enough to get people back to work? Well, I would say that the minimum wage had a wage adjustment. It was indexed to the rate of inflation. Um, And obviously, in 2020, the inflation was very low. And so what we're dealing with is it was a 10 cent increase. And so, of course, that wage adjustment absolutely in no way or shape or form addresses the kinds of costs that we have in terms of, you know, the average rent of apartments and the price of food and transportation, our cell phone bills, which are like, you know, astronomical in Canada compared to many other countries in the world. So even though that indexation of minimum wage was something that we all fought really hard for, if it's based on a a minimum wage that is a poverty wage, it is not going to give workers what they need to survive. And I think that the 10 cents is an insult. It means that you're, if you're lucky enough to have a full-time job, which many workers are not in full-time work right now because sectors are still opening up. People are working, you know, three or four shifts a week, maybe maybe two shifts a week. And so the, the that minimum wage of 10 cents an hour is going to, like, you know, you're basically looking at 80 cents a day. And, and you know, that ain't going to even buy you the price of a bus fare. So, you know, good luck on, on being able to get to work that day, you know. Now, when you hear people say, CERB is the reason no one wants to work anymore, what do you say to them? So I think that a lot of employers are using that excuse. I think a lot of employers are saying the Canada recovery benefits are why people aren't going to work. And I think that, you know, frankly, I think it's it's a load of crap. I think that the Canada recovery benefit was an essential benefit that kept most of us housed and with a roof over our heads over the worst of the pandemic. I'm not talking, of course, about students and folks who graduated from university because they were they were not protected at all. And I think, you know, CERB could have gone further not only to ensure that students had protections during the summer months, but also for 
folks who uh, were international students who also didn't get access to it. Anyways, I digress. I All I'm saying, though, is that I think that CRB was, if it wasn't for CRB, we, we would have had people being forced to go into the labor market to take any job whatsoever. So my whole thing on this is, is the fact that, you know, it is employers who want to keep work precarious, who want to not give people proper shifts and decent hours, who want people to come to work to do work that actually should be paid a lot higher. And not only that, but what what we know is, is that it's not just minimum wage earners, but it's workers who have been in the labor market for a long time. They may have been at a factory, for instance, for a long time or working in a laundromat. And they're just making 50 cents over the minimum wage. Like their wages only go up when the minimum wage goes up. And so, you know, we regularly get calls from workers who, you know, who are making still less than $15 an hour, have no benefits, no paid sick days, and have maybe worked at their company for over 10 years and are doing jobs that are physically demanding, that put their health at risk, that means that their bodies are starting to get worn down. And I think that CRB gave people the chance to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not prepared to put my entire health of my family and of my body on the line for $14.25. And I think that employers don't want to hear that. They want to have a pool of labor that is desperate, that they'll take whatever they get. And even if the job is really bad, that you won't ask any questions, you won't ask about being paid overtime, you won't ask about a raise because you should just be damn grateful to have a job. And what I'm saying is that, no, we're we're not doing that anymore, right? And I think good on workers for for basically saying, no, not, not willing to do it. And I think employers need to smell the bloody roses and understand what people are telling them that the decades of of precarious work, of bad working conditions is coming to an end because workers have seen the impact of that during this pandemic crisis, and it's not good enough. And what does workplace abuse look like? In today's labor market or just generally? um, Like, is it always visible? After covid I mean, that's the thing, like we're we're in this situation where we're just still, I mean, I feel like we're still in a pandemic in many respects because many sectors haven't still opened up, right? And I think, um, you know, we have a situation in Ontario where, you know, um, the, the conservative government has actually passed legislation to say to workers that if you go back to work after being off during the during the pandemic, and let's say you know you're you're going back to work, but the employer has changed the conditions of wages and working conditions that much that actually legally it could be construed as constructive dismissal, which means that you're being forced to quit. You actually can't claim that right now. You have you have no right to. to 
to argue for constructive dismissal until January. And, and that's when they have basically said that they'll change that law back. But we don't know because every sort of three or four months, they keep saying, no, workers have lost that right. The other thing that I think is really important to know, and I think a lot of people are, are really shocked when they find this out, is that an employer can get rid of you for no reason at all. Um, under our basic employment standards, um, we have no protection from unjust dismissal. So, for instance, if you if you go to work and everything is fine, you're doing everything fine, and then let's say your supervisor changes or something happens, you know, new 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 team leader, whatever. Maybe they don't like you. They fire you. You actually have no protection from that. And so I think a lot of people are really shocked when they find that out because it, it shows how vulnerable you are in the workplace that an employer doesn't even have to have a reason for you, reason why they fired you, why they're getting rid of you, like why they're disciplining you. And so I think our employment standards are, are very weak and are not enforced as, as much as they should be by the Ministry of Labor. And what that means then is that workers can be subjected to all kinds of abuse, things like non-payment of overtime, which is, which is a common complaint, not being paid for public holidays, not being paid for your 4% vacation pay, wage theft, being misclassified. Uh, this is uh, this is happening to a lot of platform app-based workers who do a lot of food delivery, courier driving work for big platform app-based uh, companies where you're deemed an independent contractor. So all the costs of running that business are on your shoulders, right? You have to pay for your upkeep of your car, your bike, you know, whatever your transportation is. If something happens to that, that that's on you, you know? And and so we we see that a lot where a lot of employers are misclassifying workers and saying, oh, you're self-employed, you're an independent contractor. That's why we don't have to pay into employment insurance. We don't have to you know, pay you overtime, like you're responsible for all of that. And and so that's one of the biggest um, abuses that we see. I'd say the other abuse that we see a lot of um, is that, you know, Ontario has a, a high number of temp agencies that operate in this province. And temp agency work is, is very difficult work because basically you have two employers and you have one employer that's paying your check and you don't really see, but then your other employer who is actually the one supervising you day to day, putting you in a situation which could potentially jeopardize your health, has no responsibility for your wages and working conditions, right? And so that is where, you know, uh, you're basically between a, a rock and a hard place because the temp agency wants to keep the job with the client company that you're placed at. They don't want to jeopardize that relationship because that's how they get paid. And so, uh, but you're, you're the worker that is, you know, in the middle. And so what do you do if something's happening there? We find that workers have, have a very hard time speaking out. And especially during COVID, it's been incredibly difficult because, you know, people have needed to make a living and 
but they're moving from workplace to workplace or they're being asked to stay in a workplace for years but never getting that full-time permanent job, right? So there are many issues in the labor market right now that that are leading to that kind of workplace abuse that you asked about. But I would say that the only reason why that that's happening is because our labor laws and the lack of enforcement by our Ministry of Labor allows that to happen. And would you say there's any specific industries that are more prone to workplace harassment? Yeah, I mean, I would say that any industry that uses a high rate of temp agencies, there's definitely going to be a high incidence of harassment, workplace injuries. Same thing with misclassification. Right now, we're seeing a real high number of complaints from the truck driving industry where a lot of truck drivers are being misclassified as independent contractors and workers are owed money from wages, illegal deductions, are being forced to work long hours, especially for international students who are in this awful situation of of having to work for companies like that. You know, if you say something, we're going to deport you. So, you know, I think the, the, the more precarious your immigration status the worse off your uh, the workplace abuse gets. And then the further you are away from your employers, the less likelihood you have to challenge your employer directly, like a temp agency worker, the more likely you are, again, it will be to experience forms of harassment on the job. And what would you say to anybody who is experiencing abuse or mistreatment when they go to work? Oh, I'd say get support. Like, you know, none of us need to do this by ourselves. That's one of the reasons why our worker center was um, created because, um, you know, we ourselves as workers or who were in precarious types of jobs um, found that where where do you go? Like if you're not in a union, right, Um, and, and you're working through a temp agency or you're a retail worker, like where do you go to get support? The Ministry of Labor has a call center in Sault Ste. Marie, which you're supposed to call, which they closed down many, many, many years ago, any kind of frontline offices where you could go to get support. So call places like ours, call our the Workers' Action Center. We're online, um, we have a toll-free number, and we're able to at least be a sounding board, right? To sort of kind of, like many of us aren't able to leave the jobs we're in because we need to pay the bills, right? We get that. And so the, the point isn't just to sort of like, you know, file a complaint right away, because we know that for many workers, if they file a complaint, it's not anonymous. The employer will find out and you'll end up losing your job. So how do you deal with the abuse? How do you deal with the harassment? How do you deal with the day to day situations that come up? And you're not really sure what to do, right? Call us to get some advice. But I, I would say to anyone listening in one of the biggest things that you can do is to really just keep track of your own hours of where you're working, any information you can get about the employer, you know, when something happens that puts your health at risk, like document it, leave that information at home and keep your own record because that can be used as evidence in a potential complaint. And for many workers, you know, as I said, we can't necessarily file a claim today or complain or do something, but maybe six months from now we can, right? Maybe a year from now we can. 
you have two two years to make a complaint. And that was also something that we won through pushing for that change. So, you know, if you want to know what to do or if or if you've just left a job where you weren't being paid properly and it was within the last two years, give us a ring and fight for your your wages, fight for what you're owed. Because if we don't do anything, employers feel entitled to get away with breaking the law. And I, I mean, and again, you know, there are many employers who follow the law and are doing everything by the book. But for those who are the repeat violators and who are the ones that are not, you need to get some support and some protection. So reach out and get some help. And obviously online, it's uh, workersactioncenter.org. We're in Toronto, but we have, as I said, a toll-free line. And um, you can give us a call or send us an email and we can support you and, you know, or at least figure out sort of where you can go to get some assistance from your local legal clinic, or maybe you need support for other types of issues like sexual harassment or injuries, that kind of thing. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I would just sort of say that it's, you know, the only way we get changes in our working conditions is if we fight for them, right? The only reason why we have a $14.35 minimum wage at this point, even though it's not enough, is because workers fought for it. It would still be, you know, probably 685 way back when if 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 workers didn't say we deserve more. And our campaign we that we just launched on May 1st called Justice for Workers, Decent Work for All. And it really is looking at the issues that were raised during the pandemic and about asking some hard questions around how do we how do we make sure that we get to be safe when we go to work what are the kinds of working conditions and wages that will allow us to pay the bills you know one job should be enough like people shouldn't be having to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet and so i urge you to get involved in the campaign and to fight for this we have a provincial election in june of next year we're pushing for a $20 minimum wage. And we're also pushing for no sub-minimum wages. So for liquor servers to get the same rate as regular minimum wage workers. And, and just because you're 17 and you're, you know, working in fast food, you shouldn't be paid less just because you're a student. You're doing the same work with next to an 18-year-old. Like, it's ridiculous that you would get paid a lot less because you're under the age of 18, but expected to do exactly the same work. So all I would say is that if we're going to fight for paid sick days, decent minimum wage, decent hours, you know, address the kinds of issues that probably, you know, people listening into the show have 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 actually gone through during the pandemic, you know, get involved. We have a lot of work to do, but we're only going to get those changes if Workers who are experiencing this are speaking out about it and are organizing and making sure that every politician knows that they don't just get to keep their cushy jobs and make over $100,000 a year without actually thinking about the people who are doing the kinds of essential jobs in their communities and to make sure that they also are paid properly and that they also have good wages and working conditions. So I think that that's our, our fight right now. And I really urge people to to pay attention and to do something because otherwise we're just going to go back to the way things were 
and till the next health crisis, um, you know, and then everybody would be like, why didn't anything change? So like we got to this is our moment at this at this time. So please get involved. Thank you very much, Dina. Okay, you're welcome. Rebecca Gordon is a researcher in tourism and hospitality at the University of Guelph. She recently co-authored a paper with University of Guelph professor Dr. Bruce McAdams. The paper, appropriately titled, If Restaurants Want More Staff, They Need to Invest in Their Employees. She joins me now. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Of course. Now, just to start off, why are we constantly hearing there is a sudden labor shortage in the service industry. Yeah, so there's definitely a huge labor crisis happening right now in in the restaurant industry. There's lots of positions that are vacant and restaurants are having a lot of trouble having enough staff on board to be able to run their restaurants. And this has been an issue that has been happening in the restaurant industry in Canada for many years, but it's been exasperated by COVID-19 and the different layoffs that have happened. And so over the course of the last 18 months, a lot of restaurant workers have found jobs elsewhere. And a big reason why they've gone into other industries and they're not coming back is because restaurant work is very precarious and it doesn't provide decent work. So the quality of the job tends to be quite low. It's uh, quite often very long hours, limited breaks, a lot of emotional labor goes into it. You're, you're dealing with guests and there's even lots of issues of abuse in the restaurant industry as well. So people have, have found jobs in other industries that they found support them a lot better and provide them with better quality of life. And so we're seeing all these vacant positions because of that. So when you say uh, quality of life and maybe the working conditions were never really that good to begin with. Can you define decent work? Mm -hmm. So uh, decent work is actually a concept created by the International Labor Organization. So there's a decent work agenda, which was created in 1999. And it basically states that every person in every industry and every line of work around the world should be provided with adequate pay. So through living wages, an adequate amount of time off and rest. So you're not having to work all the time and then support as well through health benefits and, and other, other means that provide support for those workers so that they're able to have a, an enjoyable, high quality, meaningful life. And what could businesses do to retain talent? Yeah, so so we're seeing a big push right now in the restaurant industry. Many restaurant workers are calling for restaurant employers to pay higher wages. And so that's one part of it, but that's not where it stops. A big thing is providing better scheduling. So I'm looking at how many hours you're scheduling your, your staff member, putting out a schedule well in advance so people know when they're working, trying to set end times. Quite often in the restaurant industry, you have no idea if you're going in for a two-hour shift or it might be a 10-hour shift. And those are things that are controllable that business owners can do that won't even really cost them any money. And then we're also seeing restaurant owners as well offering health benefits, which is a big step up. Quite, It's quite common that restaurant workers don't don't have that option. So it's it's nice to see that that's starting to come, come forward. And that definitely gets you a little bit closer to being able to reach that decent work that we were talking about. So what would you say to somebody who says... 
nobody wants to work anymore. Nobody wants to work any, like anymore in the restaurant industry, or just yeah, in or, I mean, <laughs> you, you, certainly you hear this uh, statement thrown around in general in in regards to the restaurant industry. Even if, say, somebody says, "Oh, because of Serb," or mm-hmm. what would you say to people like like restaurant owners who can't find or retain their employees? Yeah, so a big thing is that people are looking for meaningful work, and so one way that meaningful work can be provided is by providing jobs that that provide decent work and and have jobs that have high quality and making sure that workers are being respected and they're being given a job that they enjoy to do. If there's too many negatives and work becomes too much of a grind because you're you're just constantly feeling like you're getting stretched too thin at work and there's too much pressure and stress, then that's when you see that less meaningful work. So people do want to work. They just want to work in jobs where they're able to be passionate and they find meaning in their work. And we need to make sure that there's a lot more positives in, in the restaurant industry so that it supports that. And through your research, have you found that it's harder to fill roles in the kitchen than in the front of house? And if so, why is that? Yeah, so it definitely there's lots of research that it, it is harder to fill roles in the back of house. Restaurants Canada put out a survey and they, they were finding that that was a, a difficult role to fill. And the reason for that is partially due to wages. So in front of house rules, you're quite often able to collect tips and that boosts up your wage. However, in, in the back of house, that tends to be you're, you're not collecting tips or you're getting a tip pool and it's a very small fraction. So when you are, are not making a lot of money, it is hard then to provide for your life. And people have found jobs elsewhere that are able to provide them with that wage. And also the, the work is less dangerous. During COVID-19, there was a study out of the United States and it found that a line cook was the most dangerous job and had the highest mortality rate out of any job. And that's part of the reason of you're in close quarters and, and it's just challenging conditions that you're in. So that's caused people to look for jobs elsewhere. Now, you've also made the case for restaurants traditionally have focused more on their customers than their employees. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so... When you see, so I've been a restaurant manager and and so much of the focus has been on, we need to get people into our seats because that's how we're going to get revenue. And and that makes total sense. So you're doing um, big marketing campaigns, you're providing discounts to try and get, get guests into seats. But then we need to think about employees as also being a, a customer. You can't run a restaurant without those those people who are working in a restaurant and we need to be investing in them. I would say almost almost putting that same amount of thought that you put into marketing and getting customers, re- regular external customers, you should be putting into your your own employees and making sure you're you're providing them with with maybe educational tools and providing them with wages that support them, health benefits. If if you studies show that if you put that much effort and you invest in your employees, they're more likely to stay within the restaurant. And we see that one study came out and it costs about $6,000 per employee whenever one, whenever one leaves. And so if, if you think about that, that's a lot of money that we're losing, but we did never see that on the finance sheet, but it should be something that we're really focusing on because it could potentially help the business just as much as a marketing position could be. 
And is there anything else you'd like to say? I think it's really nice to see that people are starting to recognize that restaurant work has a lot of work that needs to be done to improve the conditions. And um, it's it's nice to see that there's support from those that are going to dine and they may have never worked in a restaurant before. And there are some really great owners out there that are doing really great things to support their employees. My my position isn't that all restaurant employees are are awful and providing horrible work, but we all collectively as an industry need to start thinking about what we can do to be better and, and collectively do that to, to ensure work conditions are good for everyone in the industry. Awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Dr. Patrick O'Byrne is a professor of nursing at the University of Ottawa. His research and clinical work focuses on the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of sexually transmitted diseases. His team recently developed Get a Kit, a home test kit for HIV. I met with Dr. O'Byrne in person, and he told me about the kit. Dr. O'Byrne, thanks for taking the time to meet with me. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you tell me about Get a Kit? Absolutely. So Get a Kit, uh, it's a research study through the University of Ottawa. Uh, it really sort of emerged during COVID at a time when no one could access in-person care. Um, there were shelter-at-home orders, but people were still out having new sexual partners, engaging in practices that could transmit HIV. So the purpose of the study was really to say, could we sort of re restructure healthcare in a way that people could go online, order a test kit, and it shows up at their house. This is at the same time that we were all shifting to online care, to online shopping. So it really was to say, can we capitalize on that to see if we can offer healthcare differently uh, and also make it in a way that's less um, dangerous, less stigmatizing for a lot of people. It can be difficult for somebody who is trans to go in and be misgendered. And so in this, the individual, there were no assumptions about what you look like or how you're acting or the tone of your voice. Uh, you get to select. So it was really to see, could we also sort of restructure healthcare to make it uh, less stigmatizing for a lot of groups? And can HIV affect anyone? Absolutely anybody, yes. Um, I mean, it is without discrimination. Now, the, the caveat to that is HIV does disproportionately affect particular groups. Gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men, uh, persons who are trans, members of indigenous communities, people who are African, Caribbean, black. So it's, it's not that it can't affect people who don't belong to these groups. Uh, it's just that that's where we have most current infections right now. That's due to a lot of sort of sociopolitical, structural, historical factors. But anybody is at risk, absolutely. And so the testing as well is a good thing uh, for anybody to do. But most essentially and more frequently, if you're a member of a group that's most affected by HIV. So with this kit, can people actually test themselves at home? Absolutely. This is a self-test. So uh, people sometimes get confused and they think, well, do I have to like give a specimen and then I send it into a lab. Uh, we think of like colon cancer screening, right, where people do the tests at home, but they send it to the lab. This test is wholly done at home. It is effectively like a home pregnancy test, right? You do the test uh, and within a few moments you get, just like with a pregnancy test, like one dot, two dots, one bar, two bars. Did the test work? Is it a positive or negative result? You get it. You get it in the privacy of the location you've chosen to test. Um, you do this on your own. You get to decide if you disclose to others. This isn't somebody in the healthcare 
healthcare system, taking a specimen, getting a lab, and then informing you of what was found. Uh, this is you literally putting testing in your own hands. And what happens when there is a positive result? So, I mean, the first thing is the person knows. Um, then they have to decide what to do with that. Um, medically, what we want is that people get linked to confirmatory testing to make sure it is an absolutely true positive. The false positive rate is 0.5%, so it's exceptionally accurate. But we want to do the confirmatory testing. For the individual, we want to make sure as well there's support services, peer-based services, uh, psychological services, uh, social services, medical services, all of that wrapped around. So the individual with the positive result has a question uh, before them. And that is, do I want to disclose this to anyone? And uh, if they choose not to, that's their prerogative, right? That's the sort of autonomy and the, it's not a word, but the democratization of self-testing where it's right, allowing individuals to control information about them. Uh, if they do want the services, they can uh, either reach out to any clinic or they can go back onto the Getikit website, report the result, uh, and a whole sort of chain reaction of things occur. Immediately information on testing will uh, present Resources will be provided. Uh, the research team and clinical teams will be notified immediately at this uh, occurring within five minutes of it. Uh, and we'll start reaching out to the person to connect them to services and everything, sort of that wraparound care that we'd want them to have. But it really comes down to does, is the person in the moment at that time to share that information? If they are, um, I think it's the best thing they could do because we can help connect them to things. But it's again, it's the person has the control over that as opposed to me as the health provider doing a test and being able to control right what happens to you as the patient. And what would you say to someone who may have the virus or thinks that they may have the virus but is too afraid to come forward? Well, I think self-testing is, uh, I mean, uh, that's one new sort of tool in the toolbox to use that phrase uh, for people right there's you can go for anonymous testing you can go for peer-based testing you can go to a clinic an emergency room a walk-in clinic the university health services um, but maybe it's difficult to get yourself in it's difficult to get to the appointment maybe you don't want somebody else to know so self-testing is a way that you could do this uh, by yourself now if you're not even sure you're at that step where you're like i'm not sure if i can even like personally come to terms with this um, i guess there's two things i put together to, to support people going for testing. The first is uh, when it comes to the integrity of an individual's immune system, an earlier diagnosis works better, meaning that you will live a longer, healthier life. There's less suffering. You will feel better, right? That sort of illness, the chance of you getting sort of unusual diseases caused by progression of HIV, that's all diminished. Uh, the second thing is the risk of transmission to others, onward transmission to sex partners, to people you share drugs with, people um, you love, whatever, your community members, all of that goes down too. So if you're struggling with it, knowing that there's both individual and sort of population level benefits may help the individual, but it comes down to you have to be ready to do the test, right? And if somebody's not ready to test in any setting and say, then that's not the time to do the test. But um, if you're saying, I just don't want to know because it's worse to know, it, it's probably better to know. I'd say it's definitely better to know, but it comes down to the individual being ready. And how can someone get a kit? Very simply, go on to getakit.ca. Um, depending, it's available across Ontario. Uh, for Ottawa, you can go to the forward slash Ottawa site. Um, and there's sort of, when you land on the hub page, which is the getakit.ca, you can see all the little squares right on the sub sites. Um, Ottawa has forward slash Ottawa. Then there's the AIDS Committee of Ottawa has a site. Max Ottawa has a site. So there's three different options in Ottawa. Um, if you 
prefer to go to an agency you already know, like ACO or Max Ottawa, you can do that. If you work for those agencies or you prefer to just go through the general site, that exists. Um, you just go on and then you register. Uh, and that involves submitting some information, saying, yes, you're aware of the site and it's an online system and you're going to keep your password safe and don't disclose information about you to others until you're ready to do so. And if you have symptoms, in-person care is already better. And then you go in and you do a self-assessment, which we are all very used to with COVID. Anywhere we go somewhere, whether it's now to restaurants or right, work or school, we complete the self-assessments and then it says, yes, you have a risk factor for HIV or not. Um, and then it will say you're eligible for a kit. You then have, in Ottawa, uh, a few different options. You can mail it to your house or any other address. You can pick up, uh, so basically there are kits actually in little stash sites uh, around the city. Uh, AIDS Committee of Ottawa has some, Max Ottawa has some, a pharmacy in Centertown has some, the sexual health clinic in the market has some, uh, and actually as of sort of November 2nd, uh, health promotion at the University of Ottawa will also have some on site in the university centre. Uh, so you can pick up, pick up site. Uh, and actually have it like you don't have to have it mailed to you if you don't want it showing up at your house if you live with people if you don't want roommates or your partner or your parents saying like what is this piece of mail you got you can go to these pickup sites as well um, and you just give a code that's sent to you um, an order number that we're so used to and you give the order number the order number is attached to the kit uh, and you can take it home or somewhere else or potentially do it on site there and is any information that you might give when signing up for this is that confidential it's all confidential. Everything uh, it apply, it complies with what's called PHIPAA, which is the Personal Health Information Protection Act of Ontario. Um, everything you're giving is uh, collected under research ethics board approval as well. It's absolutely private, uh, confidential. It's not anonymous. You are using your name. There are addresses and information attached, uh, but nothing is released uh, whatsoever. Um, even on reporting uh, for research, and nothing identifiable would ever be released. Um, and even if it's non-identifiable if it's basically under five people reporting any one thing all of that's suppressed too to make sure that there's no way anyone could say i know right somebody who fits with that is there anything else you'd like to say uh i think it's um it's just a new initiative it's a new way moving forward with testing um we have actually uh, as of around two weeks ago there's covid self-tests as well that you can order if you live in ottawa um, importantly on that is their molecular, not antigen. People talk a lot about the antigen tests and then people sort of question their accuracy. It's a valid uh, concern. The antigen tests, we know their performance, like their ability to detect is probably around 65, 75%. Uh, the molecular tests are usually into the 90%. So anyone uh, who lives in Ottawa who has a symptom or who is a contact um, or who is black indigenous or any other person of color with a risk factor uh, can get a free kit. Well, I guess that's a key point as well. All these kits are free. The kits themselves are free. The mailing is free and that's for the HIV self-test and for COVID. Uh, there's no cost associated with it. Uh, thank you, Dr. O'Byrne. No problem. Thanks for having me. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. Before I say anything, big congratulations to the football team on the Panda Game win. The entire stadium was feeling the emotions, and the field goal kicked by Campbell Fair to wrap things up got every U Ottawa supporter out of their seats and cheering. 
It's clear between students, the team, and everybody, Panda Game was a tradition that was super missed. And the outcome of that game was exactly what the GGs needed to get their spirits back up. The game was rainy, making it difficult on offenses on both Ottawa and Carleton to create much. The game ended with a score of 19-17. We're happy to have you stick around for another year, Pedro. Alright, what else? Oh yeah, the GGs simply could not lose this weekend. The men's rugby team went out to Coulter Field to take on Bishops University. They came home with a 44-11 win. After back-to-back losses against Laval, the women's rugby team did not plan to lose again and took down the Concordia Stingers 50 to nothing. And for women's soccer, a pair of easy wins on the road against Ontario Tech and Trent put the team at 3-0 in the season. The return of Emma Lefebvre to the GGs has been impactful for the young team, and she earned herself OUA Athlete of the Week honors after scoring a hat trick against Trent on Sunday. I'm so excited, and when I say that, please ignore the fact that I am excited every week, but the GGs basketball season is only a month away, and I actually cannot wait to get back in the stands at Montpetit Gym to watch the teams play. But let me reel it back in for what we have to look forward to next week. The women's rugby team has an away game Friday night at Sherbrooke. The GGs already know they're capable of beating this team, as they had their way with them in their home opener back in September. On Saturday, we have the women's soccer team returning to Matt Anthony Field. This time, they're taking on Carleton. The rivalry game begins at 1pm, and on Monday, the Gs will be headed over to Ravens Field for a rematch of this. Away, the men's rugby team is set to battle it out with McGill at 3pm. That same night, the football team will be back at TD Place to host York. They'll be looking to carry their momentum from Panda and continue improving their record. Kickoff is at 5 p.m. The swimming team is starting their season on Friday in Montreal, so we'll just have to wait and see what results come out of that. All right, I think we're caught up this week, and I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. Perhaps you can get the family out to watch some Gigi's games as a fun bonding activity. But I'll see you all next week with more GG Sports. Stay safe and drink lots of water. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to all our guests. Dina Ladd, Rebecca Gordon... Dr. Patrick O'Byrne. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Coming through at the last minute was our editor-in-chief, Charlie Dutille. Big thank you to star reporter, Salma Al-Hajj. Thank you very much to our multimedia director, Haley Otten. She makes art better than I do. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week.